0: Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm Jim McCarthy, and on this episode we're going to talk about infant sleep. There usually aren't a ton of questions about it on exams, but it is absolutely guaranteed to come up if you're in any kind of pediatric practice, or really even if you know someone who has kids. If you type, how do I get my baby, into Google, two of the first five autofill suggestions are to sleep and to nap, so it's something parents are going to ask about. So let's get started. First, I want to spend a minute or two on how infants sleep physiologically. Sleep is divided into rapid eye movement, or REM sleep, which is characterized by a level of brain activity similar to being awake, and deeper, non-REM sleep. As adults, our bodies follow a circadian rhythm where we wake up in the morning, get tired towards the evening, go to sleep, and start the whole cycle over again. While we're sleeping... We start by going deeper and deeper into the stages of non-REM sleep before brain activity increases back up to a cycle of REM. These cycles repeat throughout the night, usually every 90 minutes or so, with REM making up somewhere between 20 and 25% of sleep. Circadian rhythms are influenced by light and other environmental cues, so when a baby is born after spending 40 weeks in the dark, it really doesn't have much of a rhythm at all. Some happen to sleep more at night from the start, but it's completely normal for newborns to have their days and nights reversed for a few weeks. Everyone knows that babies sleep a lot more than adults, usually starting at 16 to 18 hours a day and going down from there as they get older, but the sleep structure is different too. Instead of starting in non-REM sleep, in early infancy, babies go into REM right when they fall asleep, and REM and non-REM sleep are pretty equal through each sleep cycle. By six months old... Infant sleep architecture looks more like adult sleep, with non-REM at onset cycling to REM and repeating. The transition to adult-like sleep starts around 4 months, and is probably the source of the dreaded 4-month sleep regression. Don't feel bad if you haven't heard about the 4-month sleep regression before now. I'm a pediatrician, and I didn't really know about it until my 35 month old who had been doing 6- and 7-hour stretches at night, started waking up more and more until he got us up every hour one night. It's a little bit of an unfair name. It's not really a regression, just a normal change in how the brain works. But it sure feels like a step backwards. Just remind your patient's parents, and yourselves if you have kids, that it's normal and it's going to get better. Now that we're through how babies sleep from a physiologic standpoint, let's get into how to get them to sleep safely. In the U.S., there are still around 3,500 sleep-related infant deaths every year. That's better than it used to be, but the rate hasn't changed much since the mid-1990s. The catch-all diagnosis for sleep-related death that everyone knows is Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS. It's really less of a syndrome and more of a we-don't-know-why-this-happened kind of diagnosis. There are a lot of theories about what the possible causes might be, but we still don't know exactly what SIDS is. We do know there are some modifiable risk factors, and that's the most likely way for questions about infant sleep to show up on an exam. If you have a test coming up, start paying attention now. In 2016, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out their most recent policy statement on making a safe infant sleep environment. They gathered the best available data to come up with recommendations for reducing the risk of SIDS and other sleep-related suffocation and hypoxia. The problem is the evidence isn't the highest quality. There aren't any randomized control trials related to sleep. This isn't the 1910s where you could just pick a random baby, condition him to be afraid of fluffy white rabbits, and then completely lose him to any kind of follow-up. That is actually a thing that happened. Look up the little Albert study. The pre-IRB days of human research were nuts. Back on topic, most of the evidence for safe sleep comes from retrospective case control studies, which are prone to selection, recall, and observer bias. Still, the authors used what was available and came up with a set of recommendations for kids during the first year of life. At the top of the list, infants should be put down to sleep on their back every time they go to sleep. This seems obvious now because it's posted all over every newborn nursery in the country, but the Back to Sleep campaign didn't start until 1994. When I was born in 1985, my parents were actually told that I would probably sleep better if they put me on my stomach. Once pediatricians started looking at ways to reduce the risk of SIDS, they found that babies who slept on their backs tended to do better than the ones who were on their sides or stomachs, and that countries where kids were traditionally put on their backs had lower rates of SIDS to start with. And that was the start of the back-to-sleep campaign. In 1992, there were 120 SIDS deaths per 100,000 live births. In 2001, seven years after the back-to-sleep campaign officially started, it had dropped to 56 per 100,000. This is a case where the impact on risk is more meaningful than the absolute numbers. If you did the math in your head, you know that the pre-back-to-sleep SIDS death rate was 0.12%, and afterwards it was 0.056%. Those are both really low rates to begin with. If the weather report says there's a 0.12% chance of rain, you're not going to bring your umbrella. But when you find that babies sleeping on their stomach are twice as likely to die, back to sleep is a recommendation you have to make. The AAP also recommends a firm, flat sleep surface for babies in the first year. Usually this means a crib or a bassinet with a mattress that doesn't have too much gives to it. Parents shouldn't substitute pillows or cushions for a mattress that meets the U.S. safety standards, and they shouldn't use padded mattress toppers, crib bumpers, blankets, or anything else other than a fitted sheet and maybe a thin mattress protector for leaks and blowouts. Some parents are going to ask you how their baby is supposed to stay warm without a blanket, and the answer is pajamas for everybody and swaddlers or sleep sacks for little ones who can't roll over yet. If it's really cold, you can even put on a double layer of footy pajamas, like a six-month size over a three-month, for extra warmth. The reason for a firm mattress is that if a baby ends up face down, soft bedding can create a pocket around her mouth and nose. That pocket can keep air from circulating properly and lead to rebreathing, elevated CO2, hypoxia, and even suffocation. Some crib mattresses now say that they're made with special breathable material, but there's no real evidence that they actually work, and there's definitely nothing to say that it's safe to put your baby face down on one of them. On the topic of special equipment, there's also no evidence that commercial heart rate monitors, pulse ox monitors, or even medically prescribed apnea monitors do much at all to reduce the risk of SIDS in otherwise healthy infants. They do, however, increase parental stress and anxiety. Unfortunately, there is a lot of money to be made in selling parents things to make them feel like their baby is safer, so the best we can do as providers is give reassurance and explain what the evidence says. There is some flexibility in exactly what that firm sleep service can be. Cribs, bassinets, and infant sleepers that attach to the side of the parent's bed are all approved for safe sleep. The AAP recommends against using car seats, strollers, carriers, swings, or anything else that holds babies in a seated position for routine sleep. Before four months old, infants don't have much head control, and being upright sets them up for their head to tip forward and potentially obstruct their airway. That being said, the AAP seems to recognize that babies are going to fall asleep wherever they are when they decide they're tired, which is why the routine qualifier is in there. If a baby falls asleep while you're out on a walk, or if it's the middle of the night and you know that a ride in the car will be enough to get him calm and fall asleep, that's okay as long as you transfer back to a mattress as soon as you can do it safely. Back to sleep and a flat, firm surface are probably the two most important and well-supported recommendations in the AAP's statement about safe sleep which means they're what's most likely to come up on an exam. The rest of the AAP recommendations either aren't as forceful or are completely non-controversial, like avoiding smoking, drinking, and drug use, encouraging breastfeeding, and getting immunizations. One area that I do want to make sure to cover, because it's going to come up in your clinic, is where babies should sleep. The AAP recommends that babies sleep in the same room as their parents, but on their own sleep surface, for the first six months and ideally for the entire first year. So room sharing, but not bed sharing. The room sharing part of the recommendation is based on studies that showed being in the same room was associated with a lower risk of SIDS. I will freely admit that our son did not stay in our room for that long. We started out with him sleeping next to our bed, but every single night between 3am and 6am it sounded like there was a live goose in the room. He was fast asleep, but he was incredibly noisy, and between that and the times he was actually waking up, we were starting to lose it so he moved to the nursery at around six weeks. He's alive and well, and he still loves us, and we were much more well-rested, at least on the newborn parent scale. Bed sharing gets a little more complicated, and while the AAP still recommends babies be on their own sleep surface, the recommendation isn't as absolute as it's been in the past. It's a complicated and controversial topic. Even with all the safe sleep recommendations, people share beds with their babies. There are all kinds of different reasons. Cultural norms, feeling the baby is safer next to them, ease of comforting a fussy baby. It's a long list. There's also a long list of potential risks. Soft bedding, pillows, and blankets in the adult bed have the same risks they would in a crib, and it's easier for the baby's head to be covered up. Babies can fall off the bed or into a crack next to the mattress, and that's just the risk from the location itself. Everything becomes more dangerous if anyone in the bed is a smoker or has used alcohol or drugs, if mom smoked during pregnancy, or if there are other kids in the bed. The AAP did the best they could to gather evidence and make a recommendation. Again, the studies are all case control for obvious reasons. There wasn't much out there, but the two studies they cite most prominently in the policy statement looked at bed sharing in the absence of other risk factors. And of course, they had completely different results. Robert Carpenter and his colleagues found that babies who shared a bed with a parent had twice the odds of dying due to SIDS compared to babies who were in the same room but on their own sleep surface, but a group led by Peter Blair found no statistically significant difference between SIDS rates in bed sharing compared to room sharing. The AAP went as far as to commission an independent statistician to review the studies and see if there were any conclusions that could be drawn. In the end, the short answer was, not really. The direct quote from Dr. Robert Platt, the statistician, is, While on the surface the studies appear to contradict each other, I do not believe that their data support definitive differences between the two studies. There is some evidence of an increased risk in the no-other-risk-factor setting, in particular in the youngest age groups. However, based on concerns about sample size limitations, we are not able to say how large that increased risk is. Clearly, these data do not support a definitive conclusion that bed sharing in the youngest age group is safe, even under less hazardous circumstances. The AAP took that advice to make their recommendation. While the overarching recommendation is for babies to have their own sleep surface because that's safest for everyone, they do take the ambiguity of the evidence into account. They say bed sharing should absolutely be avoided if either parent is a smoker or mother smoked during pregnancy, if either parent has used alcohol or drugs before going to bed, If the bed is very soft, if there are multiple bed shares, if the bed is being shared with someone who isn't a parent, or if the infant is under 4 months old, was preterm, or had a low birth weight. If any of those conditions are met, the AAP says bed sharing is out of the question, and they still really would rather have the baby sleep in his own space regardless. We're going to start getting away from the test-centric parts of infant sleep, so if you're only listening to study, just remember babies should be alone, on their backs, and in a crib to sleep. The rest of this episode is going to talk about some of the more practical considerations for sleep, which are important for any pediatrician to know when they're talking to parents, but the answers aren't concrete enough for anyone to put on an exam. I think it's important to have some knowledge about the evidence behind the recommendation so as you're developing your practice, you know what you want to emphasize to your patient's parents, because the reality is they're doing whatever works. In 2016, Pediatrics published a study by a group led by Eric Batra that looked at the environments infants were sleeping in to see how well the parents were adhering to safe sleep guidelines. This was a smart study because they recognized that surveys and in-hospital observation were subject to all sorts of bias, so they used video to collect their data. The researchers recruited mothers who were 18 or older with healthy newborns who were living as an independent family unit. The study population skewed towards white, well-educated, two-parent families who were doing fairly well for themselves. The mothers were 84% white, and 68% were college graduates, and the fathers had similar stats. Median age for the moms was 29, and for the dads it was 32. 82% of the mothers were married and living with their partner, and the median family income was $60,000 per year. Like I said, these patients were on the higher end of the socioeconomic ladder. They ended up with 162 infants enrolled in the study and monitored them at 1, 3, and 6 months. For the observation, a team would come to set up video equipment and microphones in the areas where the infant usually slept, more than one place if needed. This wasn't hidden either. The methods section specifically says that for all families, one camera and microphone setup were suspended on a boom stand above the infant's primary sleep location, with additional cameras and infrared illuminators monitor secondary locations and provide different views. Parents would start the recording one hour before the bedtime routine started, and stop it when everybody was up for the day. The results were impressive, and not in the best way. At one month old, 12% of babies were placed on their stomach or side to start the night, 91% had stuffed animals, bumper pads, pillows, or some other unapproved item on the sleep surface, and 28% shared a sleep surface at some point during the night. 28% slept in at least two locations, and the secondary location was generally worse than the first. 91% of the time, the second sleep location did not fit the definition of a safe sleep surface, and 67% of the time they were sharing that second location with a parent. The data stayed pretty consistent throughout the study. Prone or side-lying to start the night increased to 18% at 3 months and jumped all the way to 32% at 6 months. Unapproved items on the sleep surface stayed pretty consistent at around 90%, and kids moved to a second sleep location at some point almost always ended up in an unapproved location. 89% of the time at 3 months, and 83% of the time at 6 months. The one area that did improve was bed sharing, dropping to 22% at 3 months and 16% at 6 months. The most impressive thing about this study to me isn't that the parents didn't follow the guidelines. It's that they didn't follow the guidelines even though they knew they were being watched. They enrolled in a study on infant sleep environments. The people conducting the study set up pretty obvious recording equipment in their homes, The parents turned on that recording equipment themselves, and they still put their kids on their stomachs, had things in the bed that shouldn't be there, and shared sleeping surfaces. The demographics are another highlight. Usually when a study population is so skewed in one direction, you're skeptical about how generalizable it is, but for better or worse, well-educated, financially stable parents in their 20s and 30s are the group we'd typically expect to be the best about following safe sleep guidelines. If anything, the evidence out there suggests that families with lower socioeconomic status are more likely to share a sleeping surface. So between the fact that the families in this study came from a stereotypically positive demographic and knew they were being observed, it seems like families are probably pretty spotty about adhering to safe sleep guidelines. Having gone through all this myself in the last 18 months, I can't blame them too much. As a new parent, you're doing whatever you can to get everybody in the family to survive, and sometimes you step outside the rules to get everyone to sleep. As a pediatrician, you should do everything you possibly can to have a positive and trusting relationship with your patient's parents so they feel like they can be open with you about what's going on with their new baby. They're probably still going to lie to you at least a little bit, but if they know you're coming from a good place and have their best interests in mind, it's slightly less likely. That brings me back to the importance of knowing the thinking behind the recommendations. That way you can decide where your lines are, which recommendations you are absolutely not going to budge on, and which ones you're okay with giving your patients some leeway with. For us with our son, he had to sleep alone at night and be in a safe spot without anything else around. He sometimes napped during the day in car seats or swings or on one of us, but at night we were always consistent. There were some times early on when he just wanted to be held and we got right up to the edge of bed sharing. I remember intentionally putting myself in uncomfortable positions so I wouldn't fall asleep while I had him, but he never slept in our bed, mostly for safety and a little bit because aside from being tragic, having a co-sleeping catastrophe when I'm a pediatrician and my wife works in child protective services would be downright embarrassing. The last topic I want to cover is sleep training. At some point, whether you're a pediatrician or just talking with a fellow parent, somebody is going to ask how they can get their baby to sleep through the night. Coincidentally enough, that question usually comes up right around that four-month mark I mentioned earlier when a lot of kids start waking up more often again. I think the most helpful thing to tell parents is that there's nothing wrong with their child's sleep as long as they don't have a problem with where things are. If they're fine waking up three times a night, it doesn't matter if their friends and family are all saying baby should be sleeping through the night by now. When they do decide they're ready to do something about the way their child sleeps, there are two big schools of thought on the subject. Attachment Parenting and Crying It Out. The idea behind attachment parenting is that infants are forming bonds and need to feel secure and supported. When your baby cries at night, you immediately comfort her every time with nursing, rocking, or whatever it seems that she needs. Attachment Parenting devotees think that crying it out is cruel, teaches babies that help isn't coming, and hurts their relationship with their parents. The central theme for crying it out is that babies need to learn to self-soothe. The techniques can vary a little bit in the details, but you either delay your response when your baby starts crying at night, or don't respond at all until a certain time. You make sure that your child's needs are met. From a nutritional standpoint, babies who are growing well stop needing an overnight feed somewhere around 4-6 to months, and you know that with their needs met, they'll be okay. Parents who use cry it out generally think that attachment parenting is for overly sensitive people who are fine with never getting a full night of sleep again. Regardless of your stance, it's important that parents respond and feed their babies overnight for at least the first four months, and potentially longer if there are any issues with weight gain or other medical problems. Not surprisingly, there isn't a lot of high-quality evidence out there on sleep training, and you can probably find an article to support almost any position. The best combination of study quality and journal reliability I could find came from a study published by Michael Gradisar and his colleagues in Pediatrics in 2016. They did a randomized control trial comparing behavioral interventions for infant sleep and followed over a three-month period with a final follow-up after 12 months. It was a small group, just 43 infants total between 6 and 16 months who were otherwise healthy kids and who had at least one of their parents say they had a sleep problem, but it was still an interesting study. For the control group, they gave parents some general education about infant sleep. The first intervention group was labeled bedtime fading, and they adjusted nightly bedtime based on how long it took for the baby to fall asleep after they were put down. If it was longer than 15 minutes, bedtime was moved 30 minutes later the next night, and they kept adjusting through the study period until it was consistently taking less than 15 minutes for the babies to fall asleep. These parents did not change their patterns for responding when babies cried overnight. The third group did graduated extinction, which is a cry-it-out strategy commonly known as the Ferber method. These parents were instructed to leave the room within one minute after putting their baby down for the night. When the baby woke up during the night, they would wait progressively longer to respond, both through the night and throughout the study period. For example, the first night, they would wait two minutes to respond the first time, four minutes the second time, then six minutes the rest of the night. By the seventh night and throughout the end of the study, they would wait 25 minutes the first time, then 30, then 35 for the rest of the night. When parents did go in instructions were to comfort their child but to leave the lights out and not pick them up the researchers used a sleep diary and an activity monitor worn by the parents to help monitor the amount of time it took for babies to fall asleep to start the night total sleep time and number of nighttime awakenings parents filled out surveys designed to monitor their mood and stress and for the infants they had parents collect morning salivary samples from their babies to check cortisol levels as a proxy for stress To evaluate attachment, they did something called the strange situation procedure at the 12-month follow-up. I hadn't heard of the strange situation procedure before I read this article, but it's a protocol that's been around since the 1970s. Basically, they observe the child's response when a parent leaves and re-enters a room in different situations, compared to when a stranger does, and score the attachment as secure or insecure. Now for the results. Babies in both the bedtime fading and graduated extinction groups improved by 10 minutes or more in how quickly they fell asleep to start the night, while there was no change in the control group. Graduated extinction in the control group both had similar increases in total nightly sleep time, while the fading group had a pretty minimal increase. As for what most parents care about, nighttime awakenings, only the graduated extinction group had a statistically significant decrease from baseline during the three-month study period. With stress and attachment, everyone turned out about the same. Infants had no significant change in their morning cortisol levels and scored the same on attachment evaluations regardless of which group they were in. All the mothers also showed a similar improvement in their stress level from pre-treatment to the 12-month follow-up, although the improvement happened earlier in the two intervention groups. It's a small study, so you don't want to make any super broad conclusions But if you want your baby to wake up less at night, crying it out is effective, and no matter what you do about sleep, your stress level will go down and your baby will still love you. And that's all for sleep. For test taking, remember the ABCs of safe sleep, alone, on the back, and in a crib, and that's about all you'll need. In practice, know what the guidelines are and decide which are the ones you're going to stress to your patients. Most importantly, try your best to develop the kind of relationship with parents where they know they can tell you what's going on so you can give them the guidance they need. Sleep is hard, but it does get better. If this episode helps you or your patient sleep better at night, please give us a rating wherever you find your podcast iTunes, Google Play Music, anywhere else. I'm open to comments and suggestions. Just email pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.